Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the acquittal of the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton after damning and salacious testimony before the Texas State Senate, which failed to sway Republican senators under pressure of threats from Trump and MAGA world to launch primary challenges against those who dared vote to impeach Paxton. Joining us from Austin, Texas, is Zach Despart, a politics reporter for the Texas Tribune. He investigates power, who wields it, how and to what ends, through the lens of the Texas government, and previously covered Harris County for the Houston Chronicle, where he reported on corruption, elections, disaster preparedness, and the region's recovery from Hurricane Harvey. We'll discuss his latest article at the Texas Tribune, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton acquitted on all 16 articles of impeachment. Then we'll examine the retirement of Mitt Romney from the United States Senate and the craven cowardice of Romney's fellow Republican senators who privately tell him they agree with his criticism of Trump but dare not say anything in public. Joining us is Thomas Nichols, a professor emeritus of national security affairs at the United States Naval War College. He previously taught international relations and Soviet-Russian affairs at Dartmouth College and Georgetown University. He's the author of The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters, and Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. Currently a staff writer at The Atlantic, we'll discuss his latest article at The Atlantic, When Americans Abandon the Constitution, Mitt Romney Foresees a Disaster. Then finally, we'll look into the historical legacy of dictatorship, civil war, outside interference and corruption that has contributed to the tragic loss of life in Libya and the current failure to deal with the aftermath of the tsunami that swept away as many as 20,000 residents of Derna. Joining us is Mansour El-Kakir, a professor of global affairs and Middle East politics at the University of Texas at Austin. He is a Libyan native who has published widely on Libyan politics and society and is the author of Libya's Gaddafi, The Politics of Contradiction. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now from Austin, Texas, is Zach Despart, the politics reporter for the Texas Tribune. He investigates power, who wields it, and how and to what end, through the lens of the Texas government. He previously covered Harris County for the Houston Chronicle, where he reported on corruption, elections, disaster preparedness, and the region's recovery from Hurricane Harvey. And his latest article at the Texas Tribune is Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton acquitted on all 16 articles of impeachment. Welcome to Background Briefing, Zach Despot. Glad to be back, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Zach. And obviously, a Saturday was a, an extraordinary conclusion to a, an impeachment trial when you consider that the Republican-dominated House voted overwhelmingly to impeach the Attorney General Ken Paxton by a vote of 121 
to 23, but yet it goes to the Senate for the trial and the, for the judgment, and they let him off on, on all counts. So what happened? Well, Saturday was the, the culmination of a nine-day impeachment trial. Uh, the House essentially indicted Attorney General Paxton in May. It was up to the Senate to actually hold the trial and to see if the charges uh, would stick. Uh, essentially, uh, Paxton's lawyers uh, made a point to say that there was no merit behind the charges, that um, they were brought by uh, liberal Republicans and, and Democrats who supported that uh, pretty much cast the effort to remove Attorney General Paxton as illegitimate. The Texas Senate, just like the House, is dominated by Republicans. It is more conservative than the House. Um, and though only two of the 19 Republicans in the Senate supported any of the articles of impeachment, our attempts from talking with some of the, the senators is they were closer to having the support to convict Paxton, but when it became clear that they didn't have the two-thirds majority necessary to sustain any of the articles, then some of those Republicans pulled their support because they didn't want to be on the record supporting conviction if it wasn't going to work. So was there any pressure from any quarters to get people on the Republican side to back down? I know Trump is quite close to Paxton. Did Trump in any way weigh in? Is there any evidence that that there was more than just senators realizing that they weren't going to get the two-thirds and they're just covering themselves by not voting to impeach? Yeah, there, were, there was plenty of pressure uh, from conservatives on the Republican senators to acquit Attorney General Paxton. President Trump was, was one of those figures. Um, Paxton is an ally of Trump. He had spoken at the January 6th rally um, before the uh, riot of the Capitol. Um, but more importantly, there was pressure on, on conservative from conservative groups in Texas, uh, essentially, that uh, the Republican senators would face consequences in their next primaries uh, from uh, well-funded challengers. Uh, that is really uh, sort of the most acute pressure on, on any member of the legislature, especially Republicans who, for the most part, are running in districts drawn um, to be conservative. So, I mean, the primaries are the most uh, important and, and challenging election to win. So they were always mindful of, you know, if I'm being perceived as, as insufficiently loyal to the Republican base, uh, then I could be in trouble. So the judge, if you will, for the impeachment trial was Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who officially reinstated Paxton as the Attorney General at the trial's end. And he seems to have been pretty clearly... <laughs> in favor of acquitting Paxton, wasn't he? I mean... Yeah, it was It was a weird dynamic because uh, the way the Texas Constitution is set up, it makes the lieutenant governor the judge in impeachment trials. So Lieutenant Governor Patrick was not allowed to share his opinion about what was going on while he was the judge. And as soon as the verdicts were finished on Saturday um, and his role as judge was being done, uh, he criticized heavily the House for bringing the case, which he said was flawed, um, he said that uh, he didn't think that, that Paxton should have been convicted. He didn't think that the House had proved the case that it brought. So it, it was a jarring thing for, for legislators, including some House members who were, were there, um, to have this person who essentially was the judge, finishes that role, and then says, actually, I, I did support one side or the other. Um, some of the 
the Democrats who supported impeachment as well as the, the Republican House members who actually did the prosecution felt like, well, maybe this was rigged all along because, you know, here comes the judge saying I actually preferred one side. Patrick even called for an audit, didn't he, saying millions of taxpayer dollars have been wasted on this impeachment? He did. He did. And that was uh, echoed by some of the more conservative members of the House who opposed the impeachment back in the spring. It is worth noting, you know, in retrospect, looking back on how Patrick performed as a judge, he, he made two key rulings that helped Paxton's defense. The first one was he ruled that Paxton could not be put on the witness stand as the House wanted to do. And also uh, the woman with whom Paxton was alleged to be having an affair, which is central to the corruption charges, she also was allowed by Patrick not to testify. And that was some of the most inflammatory evidence, wasn't it? Particularly from a guy like Paxson who wears his religion on his sleeve. But that didn't carry any weight with uh, a lot of the Christian conservatives in the Senate? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, having an extramarital affair obviously itself is not a, not a crime. Um, but the, the affair was central to the House's bribery allegation, essentially, they were saying that uh, this man, this friend of Paxton, whom Paxton was doing favors for, in return, he employed this woman so the attorney general would have easy access to her when he wanted to see her. Uh, her not taking the stand really deprived the House of an opportunity to really flesh that bribery charge out. And that's, that's one of the charges that the Senate did not obviously convict him on. And of course, before he even took office, what, was it nine years ago, there's been an outstanding federal case against him for securities fraud. Now, does that come off the back burner now and become front and central? Yeah, there's a, a state securities fraud case that dates back to 2015. Um, obviously, criminal cases are almost always resolved much quicker than that. He has been able to delay that. The court, the trial was delayed again so they could have the impeachment trial. Now this you know, returns to court in Houston. You know, it's unclear you know, if it will actually happen at this point. But, yeah, that's one of his legal problems. The more pressing one for Paxton, though, is there is a, a federal uh, criminal investigation into him. Uh, we have been told that a, a federal grand jury has been impaneled in San Antonio. Um, if they bring criminal charges in that case, um, that, that's a more uh, more troubling outcome for Paxton. But, I mean, he's pretty brazen, isn't he? I mean, last fall, he ran out of a house and jumped into a truck driven by his wife, to avoid a federal subpoena. And there's also, he was caught on security footage, well, it was about 10 years ago, pocketing a $1,000 Mont Blanc pen, which an, the lawyer had accidentally left behind in a, in a courthouse. So he's not exactly a paragon of virtue here. I mean, I, I would say it's fair to say that he is brazen. He has sort of denigrated the impeachment process right from the beginning. Um, he only attended two days of a nine-day trial. It was sort of a sign of, of how he he didn't think it was legitimate uh, a process to to hold him accountable. And to his critics, uh, all of these cases you mentioned those two um, as well as this impeachment. Every time he gets off uh, in his critics' view, it sort of emboldens him to continue to act like this in the future. And that's one of the arguments the House was trying to make in their closing argument was. Look, it's not just that he has, has damaged the office, abused public trust in the past. If you restore him to office, which is what acquittal did, uh, he will continue to do that in the future. So with all the Democrats voting to impeach in the Senate, they needed, what, nine Republicans? How many did they get in the end? 
Just two. Just two. But a former friend of Paxton, State Representative Jeff Leach, made some pretty powerful statements about, even though, you know, I've traveled together with Paxton, we've attended church together, countless Cowboys and Baylor football games. We're both from Baylor students. I've block walked for Ken. I've donated to Ken. I've supported Ken. But uh, I believe that it is right, as painful as it might be for both of us, to vote to sustain the Articles of Impeachment recommended to you by the Texas House representatives. So he, this is a man of conscience, clearly, but it fell on deaf ears. Yeah, that was a memorable moment of the closing argument. The House had Representative Leach be the final word for them. He's a rising star in the Republican Party. He's just as conservative, really, as as Paxton is. And essentially what, what the House argument was, because the, the audience here is Republicans, right? It doesn't matter how Democrats vote. It's Republicans who need to vote in numbers to sustain conviction. Leach is essentially trying to convince them, like, you can think that Ken Paxton's a good guy. You can, you can still like him as a person, but we still think that you should remove him from office because that's the most responsible thing to do, even though that is uh, might be an unpopular thing you don't want to do. Uh, ultimately, the, the Senate was not convinced on that. Um, I talked to some, some lawyers in political science experts yesterday who feel like, look, like the evidence in, the, in this case ultimately didn't matter as much as what was in the, the political interest of the senators. They have to take these votes publicly. They have to face voters again. There is no downside politically for acquitting Paxton. There is a downside for voters, Republican voters, for convicting him. So do you think that this sort of resonates at a national level? Because obviously a lot of people, based upon the evidence that had been presented by the House, they thought it was a slam dunk. And I think there was quite a lot of surprise uh, across the country. So how is this playing, do you think, in terms of whether or not this is an indication of how MAGA world, if you could say Ken Paxton's a part of MAGA world, which I think is probably reasonably Mm -hmm. fair, MAGA world is basically dominating the Republican Party. I mean, I would say that impeachment trials are ultimately about politics, not about evidence. That's not unique to Texas. That's true across the board. I do think there are parallels between this impeachment and its outcome and the two failed impeachment attempts against President Trump. Uh, Trump, like Paxton, maintained the support of a crucial block of the Republican Party and the voters, whether it be in the U.S. Senate or the Republicans in the Texas Senate, uh, were unwilling to cross those voters. And that's the most important constituency, and that's uh, the primary driver uh, for this outcome. So is Ken Paxton going to do a victory tour? I believe he's going to Maine to be on uh, Tucker Carlson's, I guess it's on Z uh, X, right, or formerly Twitter. That's the venue, right? Yeah, uh, Paxton announced last week, even before the break, that he was going to go to Maine and, and do a show with, with Tucker Carlson. If we're just judging on how he conducted himself before all of this, I mean, he, he is very outspoken. I would expect him to continue to do that, um, especially because he's now defeated what, what was by far the most serious challenge to his power in the, like you said, almost yeah, nine years since he's been in office. Uh, I don't see why he would change his tune. And what about his wife? Was she in any way? She had to sit through this whole thing. She couldn't vote, but she heard all the evidence, which was pretty damning, particularly about her husband's infidelity. And what did you detect from her? Is she in any way 
moved by the evidence or obviously she's still with him, right? She's sticking it out. Yeah, that was the, one of the more interesting wrinkles of the trial. Um, Ken Paxton's wife, Angela Paxton, is a state senator. She was required to participate in the trial, but she was not allowed to vote because of her relationship with the accused. Um, I mean, she had publicly stood with uh, her husband for the trial. She had publicly um, backed him before uh, when the news of the extramarital affair became public. I mean, it was awkward that there was a lot of testimony about the affair, like, you know, and by witnesses and, and Mrs. Paxson is, is, you know, sitting a few feet away. Um, she has decided that, you know, to stay with her husband, she supports him. Uh, nothing uh, in this trial wavered that commitment to him. So just in closing then, what about the character who was the main, I mean, he's, he's been investigated by the FBI, who it looks as if he's been paying off He's been a kind of partner in crime, if you will, with Paxton, the real estate developer, Paul. Mm -hmm. What's his fate? So unrelated specifically to the impeachment trial, uh, Nate Paul, who is the real estate investor and friend of Paxton, whom Paxton was accused of doing favors for. Um, He was indicted in federal court in June on eight counts of essentially uh, lying to lenders to obtain loans. He's... um, to get loans for his businesses. That trial is scheduled for next year. Um, there is uh, potentially a likelihood that uh, Paul is called to be a witness or called to testify against Paxton if, if there is a federal criminal trial against him. The allegations in that criminal investigation are likely to be similar to the ones uh, in this impeachment trial. Obviously, senators won't be the judge of that. It would be a, a jury, a randomly selected jury, which could lead to a, a different outcome. But yeah, this is not the end of the, the Paxton-Paul Saga. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it very much, Zach. Yeah, of course, anytime, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Zach Despart, who's a politics reporter for the Texas Tribune. He investigates power, who wields it, how and to what ends, through the lens of the Texas government. He previously covered Harris County for the Houston Chronicle, where he reported on corruption, elections, disaster preparedness, and the region's recovery from Hurricane Harvey. And his latest article of the Texas Tribune is Texas Attorney General Paxson acquitted on all 16 articles of impeachment. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the retirement of Mitt Romney from the U.S. Senate and the craven cowardice of Romney's fellow Republican senators who privately tell him they agree with his criticism of Trump but dare not say anything in public. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Thomas Nichols, a professor emeritus of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. He previously taught international relations and Soviet-Russian affairs at Dartmouth College and Georgetown University, and is the author of The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters, and Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. He's currently a staff writer at The Atlantic, where his latest article 
article is, When Americans Abandon the Constitution, Mitt Romney Foresees a Disaster. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tom Nichols. Thanks, Ian. Glad to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, Tom. And the most extraordinary thing that struck me, and I haven't seen the book yet, it's not out yet, McKay Coffins' biography on Mitt Romney, who's retiring from the Senate. But what struck me was the text that Romney sent to Mitch McConnell before the January 6th insurrection. And let me just quickly read the text. In case you have not heard this, I just got a call from Angus King, who said that he had spoken with a senior official at the Pentagon who reports that they are seeing very disturbing social media traffic regarding the protests planned on the 6th. There are calls to burn down your home, Mitch, to smuggle guns into D.C. and to storm the Capitol. I hope that sufficient security plans are in place, but I am concerned that the instigator, the president, is the one who commands the reinforcements the D.C. and Capitol Police might require. And needless to say, Mitch McConnell never responded to this email or this text. So pretty shocking, don't you think? Yeah, and uh, that King reached out to Romney and Romney uh, tried to get some kind of answer from McConnell and McConnell simply ducked him and everything that they were concerned about happened. But I think it's the, you know, McKay's piece, um, and I, the book's not out yet, but the excerpts, I think, really make the case that these were all people in the grip of a tremendous amount of cowardice and opportunism. And they were hoping, as people in the Republican Party, I think, for so many years have hoped that somebody else would just make Donald Trump go away that they wouldn't have to take responsibility for it and impeach and convict and, you know, rule him ineligible for future office, Um, that they just over and over again, that the Republican establishment has said, you know, somehow somebody has to remove this guy from public life and put him in jail or rule him ineligible or, or, you know, vote him out or something. And of course that never happens. And so here we are. But I'm sure historians, though, Tom, will, will point to the period immediately after January the 6th, even though it's worth noting that some 130-odd Democrat Republicans in the House voted against the certification of Biden's victory right even yeah. after January the 6th, which is amazing. I don't know what the number was in the Senate, but it's that in itself is shocking. But we all recall how both Mitch McConnell and and Kevin McCarthy t- took to the well of the House and Senate and made very powerful speeches condemning Trump, in particular McConnell's speech, where he basically told the Democrats, look, here's the roadmap, you can put this guy in jail, and nothing happened. That obviously was the moment to deal with uh, Trump, and they never did, and then Trump, through the, this sort of psychotic willpower that he has, was able to hoist this lie on the American people, a third of whom swallowed the bait. And and it's now a bedrock belief in the Republican Party that Trump won the election and Biden didn't. So yeah, there's that, that whole period was really the last best chance for Republicans and Democrats to come together and to say, you know, we have our differences, but this person cannot be a part of our public life. And, you know, Democrats tried, Republicans were simply too cowardly. They they somehow thought that 
Trump would fizzle out on his own. They just didn't, they've never really understood what they're dealing with. I think for a lot of us, I'm, I'm a former Republican from years back. And, you know, I think all of us were, I, I, there is still a kind of disbelief that millions of Americans are actually capable of being hoodwinked this way. Um, but there has to be some responsibility here as well on the media, which keeps, even to this moment, <clears throat> keeps treating Donald Trump as if he were a normal political candidate, a normal public figure, um, that this is a normal election. I mean, it just keeps happening over and over again when, in fact, you know, the guy is a sociopath. And um, I, I think as much as we can look back um, and, you know, McKay's piece is a is a warning and Romney. That's why I wrote my piece the way I did, which is you know, Romney is seeing something terrible about to happen. Um, and yet we're doing it again. We're headed right down the same road we went in 2016 um, and again in 2020, where, you know, 2020 was a near run thing and 60, 70,000 votes in a few states could have turned the electoral college and and we just can't seem to get this normalcy bias out of our head that things will be okay and i think and i'll, I'll just make one other comment about the house republicans and the house and the senate republicans that they don't take this seriously because they don't really think there are going to be consequences they don't really think that you know, it'll just they, they think that even the four years of Trump, well, you know, it was a mess, but we got some tax cuts and um, we all made money and we got to be on TV and and a lot of us became famous. They just don't seem to care either to understand or care about the consequences to the rest of the country, because for them personally, it, it works out all right. They get to stay in Washington. Um, they get to keep doing what they're doing and stay in the Senate. And Romney says this point blank to McKay Coppins that, you know, they like being here. They like their jobs. They don't want to go home. And that I think that could lead us to an unprecedented disaster in 2024. Mitt Romney was the Republican presidential candidate in 2012, right? And that's not so long ago. I mean, the, the speed with which the Republican Party has collapsed and become a, the cult of Donald Trump is breathtaking. Well, that in part because there were opportunistic and cynical leaders who turned on a dime. It didn't have to be this way. Uh, uh, you know, there's this long-standing argument now over the past seven years of, you know, was the Republican Party always heading this way or was it this aberration and a perfect storm? And I think, you know, there are some elements of truth in both of those arguments. But the fact that I mean, the fact that Mitt Romney was, in fact, the, the, the nominee in 2012 tells you that it didn't always have to be this way, that there was once a different Republican Party and had the leaders of the Republican Party stood up. And I always raise the example of George H.W. Bush standing up when David Duke was running for governor in Louisiana and saying, he, this guy is not one of us. He's not a Republican, um, basically comes within an inch of saying it'd be better off if the other guy wins. They just didn't do it. They turned on a dime and they said, OK, this will be fun and we'll we'll get on this train. And really, what's the worst that could happen? And I think some of them were shaken out of that on January 6th, but it passed uh, You know, a few days later. And they said, well, the country didn't turn on. They didn't understand that by not carrying forward their opposition to what Trump did on January 6th, they created a permission structure for everybody else in the country to kind of shrug and say, well, I guess it wasn't that bad. 
Well, of course, ironically, it will probably be a MAGA Republican that will replace Mitt Romney, right, in the U.S. Senate from Utah. Probably. um, But, you know, uh, I think that's in some ways, that's the least of our problems if Donald Trump wins. I mean, there will be at some point the Republicans could well capture the Senate. I think Democrats as well have not. There are a lot of voters in this country, Democratic and independent, as well as questioning Republicans who just haven't gotten their arms around how dangerous this is. I mean, we're still seeing, you know, low voter turnout in in the mid lower to voter turnout in the midterms. Young people are still voting, you know, 15, 20 points behind everybody else. Um, I, I think people have just because so much in America just works, even when the voters do crazy things, I think people have just kind of accepted or internalized the idea that nothing really terrible could happen. And I think when you, and you're bringing up this you know, question of who replaces Romney, imagine what a second term Donald Trump could do with 50 senators and one vice president. Well, but whose fault is that then as the window closes for 2024? And who's, who should be making the case that America is on the precipice of fascism and that the 2024 election may be the last election we have? Well, I, mean, Rock- who's, who's not, I mean, I know the case is not being made, but who should be making that case? Well, God bless him, Mitt Romney made it and has been saying it out loud and gave that kind of access to to my colleague, you know, to write this book. I mean, everybody should be making that case, including Republicans, but they're but they're not even the people running against Donald Trump won't make that case. This is one of the most startling things I think about the primary season, which is that um, everybody gets on that stage for the Republican debate and they say Trump is, you know, Trump is terrible, um, except for guys like Ramaswamy. Oh, he's a great president. Okay. But serious people understand, and, and Ramaswamy is not a serious person, but serious people understand this, that Trump is a real menace. Nikki Haley makes that case on stage. Chris Christie makes that case. You know, there's seven of them standing there. Then the moderators say, well, who of you would vote for him if he's a nominee? And five hands go up. You, you can't seriously expect other Americans to take you seriously and accept the gravity of what you're saying. If if you're going to raise your hand and say, "Well, I've made all, I've said all these things, but you know, I'd vote for him," and only um, Christie and Hutchinson refuse to raise their hands, and you know, those are no hopers in the Republican Party right now. But your article, Tom Nichols, at the Atlantic, when Americans abandon the Constitution, Mitt Romney foresees a disaster. That gets to at the heart of the problem, right? It, that Americans are abandoning the Constitution, at least those that would vote for tr- for Trump, and we don't know what the figure is. And as you know and, and have experienced, that anybody that joins the U.S. government, whether as a politician, as a senator or a president or a member of the House of Representatives or joins the military or the intelligence services or any government position, they have to swear an oath to the Constitution to do to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That should be the bedrock of American democracy. It is the bedrock of American democracy. So if you no longer believe that, then well, what do you believe? They, they do believe it, and what they've convinced themselves, a lot of these people, 
they've convinced themselves that defending Donald Trump is the same thing as defending the Constitution. They've they've made that that they've fudged that difference in their heads to try to alleviate the, the screaming cognitive dissonance that this cultish loyalty to Trump clearly produces in a lot of people. And so I think if you asked a lot of them, I mean, I think if you ask some of the most prominent crackpots that were surrounding <clears throat> Trump during the uh, election, you know, I'm sure if you asked Rudy Giuliani, he'd say, well, I was defending the Constitution. That That's why I was doing all the terrible things I did. You know, if you ask Mike Flynn, of course I defend my, you know, respected my oath. That's what I'm doing now. Um, because they've, they've basically decided to erase that difference by saying that defending Donald Trump is the same thing as defending the Constitution. I think for most of them, especially the more intelligent ones, and this is something Romney told Coppins, which I think was really important, he said they know better. Now, this is something I've been saying for years, since back since 2015. They know better. They know they're lying. They know in their heart of hearts they're wrong. But they are making this argument now because they have to bridge that dissonance and somehow um, make it seem like they're still, you know, good Americans who are who are loyal to the Constitution, when in fact they have, you know, basically sworn an oath now to an individual. And um, and I thought it was great that Romney said it out loud, but it doesn't really help us to acknowledge that the obvious thing that Josh Hawley is too smart to believe any of the idiotic things he says, or that Ted Cruz is anything. Uh, but a pandering opportunist. But the, but they're still in the Senate, and they're still going to keep doing what they're doing. Mitt Romney saved his greatest disgust for J.D. Vance. So, which I think was I think spoke well of Romney. And um, as I said in the, I mean, I've written um, a few pieces about J.D. Vance, and I, I share his. I saw. I, I I was actually very glad to know that Senator Romney shared my exceedingly low opinion of Senator Vance. But again, you know, what what was Romney's point about Vance? He knows better. He knows the truth. He knows that what he's putting out there is is just crap. And that um, Vance especially, it's clear because for years he talked about Trump and warned about Trump right up to the minute it was no longer um, consonant with his personal fortunes and desires. I mean, Vance is a guy who wrote in my magazine in the Atlantic, he referred to Trump as cultural heroin. Right. And and now, you know, is running around talking about uh, degenerate liberals and wokesters and, you know, the all the all that Fox and Newsmax um, nonsense that he and, and I, I think Romney, understandably, knowing the truth and knowing that Vance knows the truth. Romney is absolutely disgusted by it, as I think most people should be. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Tom Nichols, you mentioned that Trump's defenders, the most prominent ones, Rudy Giuliani and General Flynn. I mean, I can understand, to, you know, they're, they're essentially corrupt or corrupted by power, by the proximity of power. But what explains the rank-and-file MAGA people? Is it simply gullibility? Because you would have to scour oh. the earth to find a human being worse than Donald Trump. There's just nothing about this man. He is just absolutely grotesque and dangerous. And I've spoken to a lot of people that have been inside the Oval Office working for this guy up close, like Miles Taylor and others. And they tell you the most hair-raising stories, I mean, the crazy stuff, the stupid, 
dangerous, I- ignorant stuff that he was trying to do and trying to order his his generals to do. And he was sadistic, too, on top of all of that, and petty and cheesy and, and, and a total and, Bulgarian. And people like that. That's his appeal to them. They're not gullible, and I, I, I think... Um, you know, some of them are gullible. Some of the older folks who genuinely believe, you know, that Trump was, I remember one lady called me years ago and and was very angry at me for not believing that Trump wasn't going to build factories to build spaceships for Space Force in West Virginia. Um, okay, you know, that's, there are people who just get sucked in by, you know, wild promises. And that, that happens to a lot of people across parties and ideologies. But I think the bigger problem is that there are people who know he's terrible and that's what they like about him because, and I, and I wrote about this in, in my book, the, our own worst enemy, the motivating emotion in America now is resentment. It's cultural and status resentment. And what Trump does, Trump for his entire life has had that kind of outer borough, New York, nose pressed to the glass, you know, why aren't I, I'm a billionaire, why aren't I accepted in Manhattan? You know, why does the world still look down on me after all this money I made? And um, the people who support him feel that way as well. You know, why, why aren't I accepted? Even though they claim to not want to be accepted, you know, why is the dominant culture no longer my culture? Why is it that, people in New York or Chicago or San Francisco. Why do I feel like they're looking down at me? And Trump hates the same people they hate. Now, a lot of those people, they're not, they're not actually looked down upon as much as they think they are. They're actually, for years, they've controlled a majority of the political offices in America, but they have built this narrative of grievance and this sense of being an embattled minority you know, even in places that they control from top to bottom. I mean, you know, you go to a state like Idaho or, or Alabama, and, you know, people say, well, we're the minority and we're put upon and we're embat-. you You know, they run everything, but they have um, in, imbibed this, this kind of 150 proof hooch that's pu- pushed on them through Fox and talk radio and people like Trump and they have come to believe it. And then Trump says, listen, I hate the same people you hate and I'm going to get even with them. And yeah, I'm a, I'm a son of a bitch and I'm horrible, but I'm the person you need to make their lives miserable. And they say, you're my man. You're my guy. Have at it. Well, Tom Nichols, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I mean, speaking with Thomas Nichols, who's a professor emeritus of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. He previously taught international relations and Soviet Russia affairs at Dartmouth College and Georgetown University, and is the author of The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters, and Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. And he's currently a staff writer at The Atlantic, where his latest article is When Americans Abandoned the Constitution, Mitt Romney foresees a disaster. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the historical legacy of dictatorship, civil war, outside interference and corruption that has contributed to the tragic loss of life in Libya.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mansour El-Kakia, who is a professor of global affairs and Middle East politics at the University of Texas at, at San Antonio. He is a Libyan native who has published widely on Libyan politics and society, and is the author of Libya's Gaddafi, The Politics of Contradiction. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mansour El-Kakia. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Mansour. And it is the legacy of four decades of Gaddafi's rule that is contributing to this tragedy, is it not, in Derna, because of the the poor infrastructure, the way that he centralized the government, and of course, in toppling him, a subsequent civil war has divided the country. So there really are two Libyas, one in the east and one in the west. And the one in the east, of course, is run by a warlord, Haftar, who was supported by Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, and Russia. And the other Libya in Tripoli is supported by the UN, by Turkey, and by Qatar. So foreign interference, it's a tragic situation on top of which you have 10,000, you have 11, over 11,000 people uh, dead uh, from this uh, dam burst and flood, uh, and you've got possibly another 10,000 or more missing. So let's talk about the history and context here. How did Libya, I've tried to sketch out some of the history, but is it fair to say that the the blame starts with Gaddafi? Uh, First of all, I want to correct something. I'm no longer the chair of the political science department. And secondly, you have it so so right. What do you need me here for? You, you really do a fantastic job, honest. Um, I think, I mean, you said exactly what I want to say. The truth is this is the legacy of Gaddafi. The Gaddafi is gone, but Gaddafism is still there. Don't forget, 40 years has a phenomenal impact on our population. You know, you have people who've grown up only under Gaddafi's rule and know nothing but the way Gaddafi was. And Gaddafi really loved chaos. And when he left the country, he got what he wanted. The country is in chaos. This is this is this is the real problem. The problem that Libya had billions and billions and billions of dollars, you know, and money for more. But none of that, or very little of that, was used to develop the country or the infrastructure. The biggest problem with Derna, and we can see this town in Derna and in the mountain, the green mountains and so forth, you have towns over there who have no sewer systems. Water has to be pumped, brought in with trucks after 40 years. And you will country, compare Libya to, to, to Qatar or to, or to the Emirates. The Emirates in 1970 was two barns and a hut. Today, look what it is. With less money than, than, than Libya. But Libya's money was spent on these white elephants, silly programs, supporting terrorism. So yes, you are very right. It is a legacy of Gaddafi that's brought about this 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 issue. So, is given that that he was, as you pointed out, spent money on grandiose pro- projects and on on military weapons and on supporting terrorism, but he himself was just ludicrously vain and egotistical and narcissistic and without venturing too much into domestic u.s politics he's sort of a bit like uh, donald trump isn't he i mean he's a guy that only cared about himself 
is and identical. Is identical, identical you, to your mind? Is identical to Trump. The only difference between Trump and Gaddafi is the United States has a constitution and has laws, while Gaddafi had no laws and no constitution. But identical, the narcissism, the the, the stupidity of the thinking, the the, the 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 love the love of showing up and showing showing themselves, is identical. I mean, this. I mean, there was a. I read a, a piece the other day, on doing a comparison between Trump and Gaddafi. And the and the author was quite right. He said, this is, "I'm talking about the same same person. It's identical, honest." Well, well, as you point out, at least the U.S. has a constitutional. Although maybe in a year's time we won't have one. Um, oh, I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, let's go back to the U.S. intervention and the fall of Gaddafi after Gaddafi had threatened us to slaughter everybody in Benghazi. Interestingly enough, it was Vice President Joe Biden who was against the U.S. intervention at the time, but he got overruled, obviously, by Obama and by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. So that's sort of interesting, isn't it, that now he's stepping up to the plate to try and help with humanitarian aid. Well, yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, the, the issue, the issue over here. I mean, the United States did a great deal, and I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for the U.S. to help Libya remove Gaddafi. I, nobody can deny that he was he was he was an awful person. He was a monster. He was a monster for Libya and monster for the world. So this is what this is. This is one. But I mean, but but secondly, the truth is, I, and I don't blame the United States, and I don't blame any other country for, for, for that. The only, the only blame I blame the international institutions and the, the United Nations for, for continuing to support the, the, these illegitimate governments of the West who really doesn't care about the East or care about any of, of taking place, anything in, in Libya. Moreover, the government that we have currently in the West controls only Tripoli. The rest of the country is dominated by Haftar. This is so we 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 we, we and Hefter is 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 no nice. He's just not a nice man either. I mean, he's an individual who spent 23 years in the United States. He didn't even bother to learn English. He spent 23 years in the United States, and he saw you know rule of law, constitution, democracy, and he goes back to Libya and does exactly the same thing that Gaddafi was doing. And Tripoli, the way the West is dominated not by 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 the government, the the, the legitimate or the, the recognized government is dominated by militias. This government today can't operate without the militias. This is why Libya really is a failed state. It isn't a state in the first place. So you have, you you have you have you have this huge problem domestically, politically, socially, and then you add to it nature. I mean, this is the first time that Libya had to ex- has experienced this type of catastrophe. The last time was it was an earthquake, and the earthquake took place in the same area, by the way, 1964 in El Marish. And it, but it was sparsely populated then. There weren't too many people. But this one is a catastrophe because Libya has never experienced something like this in the first place. And secondly, this is the first of the many to come. I mean, the same problem that Florida is going to experience and Texas is experiencing, Libya is going to experience with the heating up of the Mediterranean, perhaps even more so. In my flying days, I used, I used to, we used to have, really avoid the cumulus nimbus that come from all the way from Lebanon, hugging the, the, the coastline from Lebanon to Egypt to Libya. And they come in, they come in five or six or seven, they're, they're a family of nimbus, cumulus nimbus. And they, and they, 
absorb the water from the Mediterranean. And when they come to a high, high land, they dump that water and they keep on going all the way into Morocco. And then they come to the Atlantic and they turn into hurricanes for the United States. But never before has Libya experienced anything like this. And more important, as you quite rightly said, Gaddafi did not prepare Libya for such a catastrophe. He did not invest in infrastructure. He did not invest in, I mean, and more important, I mean, yes, Gaddafi is responsible. I have no doubt about that. But let me tell you, Libyans too are responsible for this. They, 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 they build, they build houses without permits in, in dangerous areas. And they and they and you can't get them out. Their cousins and brothers, a, a tribal society continues to exist in Libya today, and it doesn't pay attention to the rule of law, doesn't pay attention to 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 doing right. Corruption is rampant in ways that never before. And so and so Gaddafi is responsible. But I think also Libyans are responsible because they learn too much from Gaddafi. Gaddafi told them to, to rob, to steal, to, to, to do wrong. And uh, they call themselves Muslims and they shouldn't be doing this. But why do you follow orders such as, such as Gaddafi's orders? So I think, I think Libyans are, I mean, Brutus, uh, uh, the Bard was right. Our force is not in our, in, in, in our in a, what do you say? He says... Not in the stars. Yeah. Not in the stars, but in ourselves. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it's ourselves. I think Libyans are responsible to a large extent for this because they don't do right. And perhaps maybe this is a wake-up call for them. Well, the chances of unity, though, aren't particularly good. And Haftar, as you mentioned, is the warlord in charge of the East uh, where this tragedy took place. And his prime minister has visited, but he's not. And the people are very angry. But you mentioned that Haftar spent over 20 years here in the United States and didn't bother to learn English. He also uh, worked for the CIA, did he not? He worked for the CIA and he worked for Gaddafi too at the same time. I mean, don't forget, he was was the, the general who invaded Chad in 1982. He was the one, and then and then when he broke with Gaddafi, he, he, he of course he, he he came to the United States. But Gaddafi was still paying for his way. He was he, he had a beautiful villa in 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 in, in Egypt, and he had, and his house in the United States, Virginia, was paid for by Gaddafi too. It's hmm. it's, it's 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 very strange when you when you see these things happen. But you know, we we, we live in a world that's 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 full of, full of miracles, if you like. Right. Well, he's now, of course, supported by Egypt, Haftar, by the United Arab Emirates, and also and Russia, and Russia, Russia, and 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 the Wagner Group are in there, aren't they? The mercenaries. Exactly. exactly. It is. It's a catastrophe that that has been supported by so many of these countries. I mean, De Gaulle was right. In the international system, there are no friends. There are only interests. What is Egypt and Emirates and the Saudi Arabia and the Wagner doing in Libya? Why is Qatar in Libya? I mean, wh- why is Turkey in Libya? Because it loves Libyans. I mean, Libyans—they don't seem to wake up with this, with this, with this catastrophe and on the doorstep. I mean, there are only five million people. That's all it is. And 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 many of these countries are not caring for Libyans. They're caring for the real estate. It's a, it's a phenomenal real estate on the Mediterranean, and each one of them wants to get hold of it. But what we're going to see in the end is a breakup 
of that country into three, maybe maybe four regions. And each one of those, Turkey having the whole controlling the West, uh, uh, Egypt controlling the East, and the South, maybe the French, or maybe some other, other, other power. And on top of this, there's also a refugee problem. It has a small population of 5 million, Libya, but it's also a transit route from, from Africa into the Mediterranean and into Europe, is it not? And I believe among the thousands, among the thousands who died, more than a, but more than a million Africans from 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 Central Africa, from Chad, not from Chad so much, but from Niger, from Ghana, from from Nigeria, from Ivory Coast, and from Ethiopia. You know, they, they, more than millions have come to Libya and they crossed the, the, into Europe and these rinky tinky, these dinky tinky uh, boats. You know, but here's the big problem in the East: it's Hefter's son who's getting paid for much of that. I mean, first of all, I read that in the, in the, in the, the, the Spiegel, with the German, the Spiegel. But, it, but I knew that, I knew that earlier. I mean, from, I had people who, my friends who, who work in that, that region, that region, had told me about this, that his son is instrumental in, 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 in moving people from Africa into Europe. I mean, this this last boat that sank of 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 Greece, of uh, the Mediterranean, of, of of Greece. Okay, he he had a hand in it, but this is the problem with with Hefter. Hefter's now this is the same the, the history repeating itself. Gaddafi with his sons, and now Hefter with his sons. He has five sons, and each one of these has a militia. They have their own their own. I mean, Benghazi. When 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 they removed Gaddafi, tore down many of these military bases. Hefter has come back and he built them even higher and more of them. You go from one military base to another military base in the city. The city is all military bases of Hefter. You know, and no one can, because here's, here's a catastrophe of the Arab world. The catastrophe of the Arab world is these, these military regimes. And who joins the military? Those who join the military basically are illiterate, okay, illiterate, poor, and this is the only way for social mobilization to go up. Give an illiterate right. individual, okay, Position and give them a gun. What do you expect? This is the catastrophe. Whether it's in Libya, whether it was in Tunisia, whether it's in Yemen, whether it's in Sudan, whether it's in Egypt, whether it doesn't matter where it is. Okay, right. this is this is the catastrophe of of the Arab world. Ron, and Saudi Arabia have to include that because just we learned recently that the Saudi Arabian military in the south was shooting. Uh, refugees uh, from yes, Ethiopia yes, for sport. Yes, yes, yes. But see, and here's the issue: just, just no one is going to hold these people accountable. Just like th- I was reading today, and and this, listening, listening to the to the station in, in Libya because I, ha- I get the satellites from 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 all five or six stations from Libya. Yeah, I was listening to these government officials denying that they're responsible. We have nothing to do with this. This is God. God did this. We didn't do anything. And well, yet, this is, it's crazy. And yet, well, but the same God, the same God that was behind the storm, uh, the storm also hit Greece and only six people died. Exactly. Exactly. You're so right. But here's again, you have to understand that in, in 2002, there was an international report Detailing the dangers that these two these two dams in Derna was facing. That's in 2002, 
and theoretically, and this, and I, and I was, and, and a, a friend of mine in the, in the ministry told me that Gaddafi actually sent money to Derna to, to fix those dams. That money found its, its way into pockets of people and not into the dams. Wow. This, 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 this is what I'm talking about, is that on paper, the country looks developed, but in reality, there is no development. 40 years is just gone. And I don't know how Libya is going to manage in the next 10 years as more and more and more countries move away from energy, from oil. And Libya still produces the only thing, oil. Right, most so, of which gets stolen, of course. Exactly, so, exactly, exactly. I so, mean, we, it's a catastrophe. Well, Mansour, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but I, I appreciate you joining us. I, I really do get this insight into the country that's now facing a massive tragedy. I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me again. And I've been speaking with Mansur El-Kakia, who is a professor of global affairs and Middle East politics at the University of Texas at San Antonio. He's a Libyan native who has published widely on Libyan politics and society and is the author of Libya's Gaddafi, The Politics of Contradiction. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.